Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 11th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... So I remember when I went to Caltech in 1970 and started developing a series of five different instruments that basically became the, the, the foundation for modern molecular biology... That's one of America's preeminent biologists, Leroy Hood, co-inventor of the automated DNA sequencer. Leroy Hood was described in Scientific American magazine in 1994 as not just one of the most influential molecular immunologists of the age. He has also made a name for himself as a charismatic and astute businessman who has helped launch several companies commercializing advances in biotechnology. We'll talk to Hood and we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. Leroy Hood was at Caltech from 1970 until 1992 when Bill Gates gave the University of Washington $12 million to lure Hood there as head of a new interdisciplinary department of molecular biology. And in 2000, Hood founded the Seattle-based Institute for Systems Biology. So what is systems biology? Hood, an ex-college football player, once described systems biology with a gridiron metaphor. You never understand the game of football, he said, by defining what the end or fullback or even the quarterback does. It's understanding how the team plays together and how the other team plays against them. It's systems within systems and the interactions between them. Or, as the journal Nature Biotechnology put it, systems biology ideally seeks to understand complex biological systems in their entirety by integrating all levels of functional information into a cohesive model. That's rather than looking at one gene or one protein at a time. Leroy Hood recently dropped by the offices of Scientific American, where a group of the magazine's editors sat down with him for a chat. Here are some of the highlights of that conversation. First, I asked Hood about that football analogy. You know, I'll, I'll give you a much better analogy, if that's okay. I mean, one that anybody can understand is... Suppose you were an engineer and you wanted to figure out how a radio converted radio waves into sound waves. What would you do? First thing you'd do is you'd do a parts assessment. You'd list all the parts of the radio. That's what molecular and cell biology have done for 40 years. They've, and, and they've only actually studied half the parts or less, even in that time. But what the Genome Project did that was really key for systems biology is it gave us the complete list, or relatively complete list, okay? So what's the second thing you'd do then? You'd, you'd put the parts into their circuits, and you'd try and understand how the circuits individually and collectively moved electrons around and what that inference had for this uh, conversion process. And systems biology in humans is exactly the same. Inf biological information is handled by these various types of biological networks. And the key to understanding biological complexities, understanding how this information is processed uh, by these networks dynamically. When I do this here, what happens all the way over here? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. But, and, but even more than that, you want to say when you do this here at time one, what happens over here? But if you do it at time two, how is what happens over here changed? Because the architecture, as well as the quantitative aspects of the components in the network, have all changed. And and in if it's proteins, we're talking about the qualitative aspects of the proteins change with modification, with processing, with 
with moving from the cytoplasm to the nucleus, all these other kinds of components. Siam editor Gary Sticks asked Hood if the concept of systems biology is making inroads in the biological community and whether systems biology is being carried out in the way Hood thought it would be. So I'd say two things. One, systems biology has been around for 100 plus years because, you know, if you think about physiologists and homeostasis at the turn of the uh, 19th century, that's systems biology or neurobiology or immunology or those are all systems. But so I would say what distinguishes the systems biology I think about are, are really four ideas. So one is the idea that where possible, you try and do global measurements. And by global, I mean you look at all DNA, all genes, all messages, in principle at all proteins. We can't do it yet and so forth. But you, you don't look at just a subset of things. You try and look at everything. Mm-hmm. And I think the second thing that's really key if you're to do quantitative modeling is those measurements should be as quantitative as possible. Mm-hmm. I think the third thing that... Uh, is is really fundamental. Um, well, let me just say that that what what the the essence of systems biology is really looking at biology as an informational science, and by that I mean two different things. So, one is the idea that there are two fundamental types of biological information. There's the digital genome that um, is ultimately knowable right down to the last base pair in principle. And that's what distinguishes biology from all of the other scientific disciplines. There is this core of certainty from which we start building living organisms that is totally accessible. And then the second type is the environmental information that impinges upon and changes, modulates the digital information. So I see the role of systems biology is being able to assess the relative contributions of those two types of biological information to one um, development, two physiologic responses, and three disease. That's the big, I mean, in health sciences anyway, we can talk about energy and other things uh, differently. And I would say the second basic idea in looking at biology as an informational science is that all biological information is processed by biological networks. So they can be networks within cells, Mm -hmm. they can be cells themselves that are networks, or they can be networks of living organisms and ecologies that interact. So there are these different hierarchical levels of information. And to understand most systems, what you have to be able to do, uh, and this is the third imperative, is integrate as many of these levels of information as they change dynamically across development, physiology, or disease. And again, a a fundamental aspect is networks and their dynamic changing and the ability to integrate different types of information. And by integration, what you really mean is how you can take DNA and RNA and proteins and interactions and so forth and put them together so that you can extract and separate out what is digital information from what is environmental information. That's really, and you'll never understand systems if you try and study them at just one level of dimensionality, like genomics, okay? You'll 
that that doesn't begin to get at the the rich diversity of information that is uh, that's generated. So the th so those four things then the ability to study things globally, uh, to uh, study things quantitatively, to study things dynamically, capturing these networks dynamically, and and finally the ability to integrate the levels of information. Those are the four attributes that I think separate the systems biology I think about from uh, a lot of other things out there that has been defined in different ways. And look, systems biology, you, the, it's all the eye of the beholder. You can, you can define it any way you want. There, most of the people who claim to be doing systems biology are really studying simple and complex molecular machines and how they function. And that is that is an aspect of systems biology, but it isn't. It's the networks that really capture and store and transmit and integrate and modulate and, and finally end up executing the biological information. It's a, so the heart of our systems biology is really understanding these biological networks in their in their various dimensions. Scientific American editor Steve Ashley. I'm interested that you mentioned the dynamics because that was my next question. You talk about you know, the digital genome and the environmental, but the timing of the environmental impacts absolutely to quantify, codify, do anything. Uh, can you comment on that? Is that going to be the hardest part to get? Or? I'll tell you what I think the hard pro really hard problems in systems biology are right now. So I think one is figuring out how to integrate different types of information. That is really challenging. I think, too, it's taking enormous amounts of data. And my prediction, and maybe we'll talk about it later, is in 10 years in medicine, we'll have billions of data bits on every single individual. And the key question for medicine is, how are we going to reduce that data dimensionality to simple hypotheses about health and disease? So this reduction in data dimensionality to biology or to to medicine is is really a key and challenging problem. I think uh, a third problem that that a lot of people in the field don't realize is data space is utterly infinite, and if you want to understand an aspect of a system, you have to figure out how to query the right part of data space to get information that is actually relevant to the biology you're interested in. And one of the enormous dangers of all these high-throughput data sets that exist out there in the literature, apart from the fact they're error-prone to the nth degree, is the fact that many of them were captured in the wrong data space, and they can be very misleading about the biology you might be interested in. So you have to be sophisticated about those kind of things. What's uh, in it, you mean an example of data that might have been gathered in the wrong data space? I'll give you a really simple example. It, one of the things that we've studied with Eric Davidson at Caltech is the development of sea urchins, okay? And sea urchins go through two separate phases of development. They develop as a larva over a period of 72 hours or so where they're mobile and they even have a kind of a notochord-like thing. And then in the adult stage, they become sessile and sit down and they become the plant. So I would argue Information that's taken in the larval stage about how development is occurring would be utterly irrelevant to information um, captured in the sessile adult stage. That is, they're 
they're solving completely different problems, yet they are the same organism. And it's, it's, it's looking at them in different time dimensions in this case. But, um, so that's, that's a kind of example of something that could be very, very misleading. I think so. I mean, and another one is how do we visually represent the dynamics of networks? I mean, first of all, networks are really quite complicated. And second, they, they do change, and they change quantitatively in the nodal components of the networks, but they change in the architecture of the network as well. So how do you, how can we visualize the dynamics? So we're actually working with a group that is one of the world's experts in, in visualization at the University of Utah. Different levels and things and brand new branches. Exactly. That's the kind of thing that you can think about. But, but you know, it's one question. Let's say that we could capture data at fine enough time points that we could have data representations for, and, and it's a lot of data, so you'd need quantitative representation of messenger or proteins or whatever yeah, you're looking at. And, but you'd also need measurements that told you who was interacting with whom mm -hmm. and how those interactions changed when you modified the proteins or when you accelerated their turnover or what, you know, what all the different ways that we could think about doing this. So we don't, we don't have good ways of, of handling that. And, and being able to visualize Visualization of information is really key for this, trying to reduce its dimensionality to things that we can understand. And so we have to figure out how to do that. And we, do, we were not very far along. Hood then discussed the future of biomedical science. So I think one of the really interesting questions is if you think about where all these things are going to go in medicine, I would argue in 10 to 20 years, we'll have a medicine that is predictive, highly personalized, is will start to be preventive in the next 15 years or so. And and ultimately, it's going to become very participatory because there will be so much knowledge out there. And I would argue that that will transform the business plans of every single major component in the healthcare industry, drug companies, pharma, insurance companies, HMOs, IT, uh, Medical schools, I mean, you know, medical schools are teaching their physicians many of the wrong things now. How are you ever going to get them to change in a major way for this new kind of medicine? And those are all really interesting questions. And, and, and there are two possibilities. One, you can set up entities within older entities that have enormous independence and are not blocked by the conservatism either of the scientist or of the bureaucrats. Or two, you just start brand new things that start out with a mission to do this thing completely in the right way. And of course, to start out new medical schools these days would be pretty tough, I think. I mean, somebody like Gates would have to put in, uh, you know, a billion dollars to really get something going right, or more, more than that. What if, what if the consequence of, of uh, all this knowledge is for the vast majority of people, you have to eat more healthfully and get more exercise <laughs> rather than... So I'll tell you, my attitude is after I look at the billions of dollars we've spent trying to persuade people not to smoke is the only way in the end you'll probably be able to deal with those issues is say, here's a pill. You can eat as much as you want, but if you take this pill, 
you'll be okay. Or here's a pill. You can smoke as much as you want, but if you take this pill, you'll be... I mean, that's slightly cynical, but either that or psychologists are going to have to learn some fundamental new principles to convince... Um, See, I, th I think the real problem is it's easy to persuade young kids of particular kinds of ideas because they're flexible. I think it's virtually impossible to get adults to change their ideas in any major ways. And, you know, look sure. at debates on religion or intelligent design and creationism. Leroy Hood is also a member of the Genomics XPRIZE Advisory Board. That's a group within the XPRIZE Foundation that will award a $10 million prize to whoever can put together a system for sequencing 100 human genomes in 10 days. And for more on Hood's Institute for Systems Biology, go to www.systemsbiology.org. We'll be right back. Scientific Americans RSS feeds. They help you keep up with the latest science trends. Choose from a variety of topic feeds at siam.com slash RSS. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, NASA has purchased the world's most expensive toilet. Story 2, a multi-institutional study has confirmed that a diet rich in lycopene, a compound found in high amounts in tomatoes, wards off prostate cancer. Story 3, researchers found evidence for the cultivation of at least 10 different kinds of chili peppers in Mexico, possibly as long as 1,500 years ago. And Story 4, the super-rare butterfly known as the El Segundo Blue, has suddenly been found all over a couple of beaches in Southern California. Time's up. Story 4 is true. The tiny El Segundo Blue, an endangered species of butterfly, has emerged in strong numbers in Redondo Beach in Torrance, California, the LA Times reports. Apparently, the key to the appearance was the replacement on the beaches of a non-native plant with the buckwheat that the El Segundo prefers to feed on. A few colonies of the butterflies had been kept alive on private properties, but as soon as buckwheat came back to the beaches, some of those sequestered butterflies apparently made their way to the suddenly greener pasture. Story 3 is true. The desiccated remains of 10 different cultivated varieties of chili peppers were found in a couple of caves in Mexico. The find also showed that ancient Mexican peoples were using the chilies both fresh and dried. For more, check out the July 10th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. And Story 1 is true. NASA spent $19 million on a Russian-built toilet for the International Space Station. A photo of the toilet shows what appear to be straps for your feet, which is a great idea given Newton's third law. All of which means that story two about a diet rich in lycopene preventing prostate cancer is unfortunately totally bogus because a study of 28,000 men by the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center in Seattle and the National Cancer Institute found that lycopene and other antioxidants exerted no beneficial effect against prostate cancer. You can read more about that in the updates section of the August issue of Scientific American on page 16. And despite this news, I plan to continue to eat tomato sauce in copious amounts, especially in pizza. <laughs> 
Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Scientific American podcast. You can write to us at podcast.siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thank you.